So I want you to consider just for a minute, don't shout it out yet, but if there's something that you might have in your house that whenever something breaks down, you go to. It's kind of one item that people often go to. It's meant for one purpose, but we use it for lots of things, and it's kind of the catch-all. If you have this, you can fix anything. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Duct tape. I don't know what else I heard, but I'm going with duct tape. We get it, don't we, that duct tape somehow does many things beyond its actual intent. You realize it's for duct work. That's what it's meant. But we use it for lots of things. And we say it helps with everything. In fact, just to give you an idea of the many things it can be used for, we won't get to all of them, it can be used as a coaster. Did you know that? Duct tape can be used. You're sitting there thinking, oh no, I want to put my glass down, I have no coasters, what do I have? Duct tape! I can use that. But it has lots of other uses as well. Did you know that when your pants are kind of getting all goofed up, you can take duct tape on the inside and tape them to your sock? No problem, the pants don't bunch up, they don't turn the wrong way. Some of you may have done that today. You might even turn to your neighbor and go, you got duct tape down there? But it has lots of other uses, these are just a few. I'm amazed at all the things it does. Did you know if you have a cast and you didn't have time for a sling, or your orthopedic doctor, your surgeon forgot, I don't need to go back to my doctor, I can create a sling with duct tape. Come on, isn't that amazing? And that's not where it ends. I feel like I'm selling other things. Some of you go, I didn't know what to wear. Problem solved. I didn't see anybody sporting duct tape for their clothes, but it is clearly an appropriate garment. You never thought of it for that use, did you? There can be things even for those of you who are hunters. Do you realize sometimes your arrows have trouble and you go, I lost the back of the arrow, I've got duct tape. But it's this last one that really gets me. Do any of you realize like, Part of my car is missing and I don't know what to do. Problem solved. A quarter of that car is duct tape. I couldn't decide if I was impressed or just really sad when I saw that. It's kind of a a joke in one sense, but in another, we do live that way. We grab duct tape for about anything, don't we? And the reason I bring up duct tape today is in this final chapter, this final part of Peter's letter, He's going to offer some different important kind of ways to live and different issues that are going on. And he offers three of them, but what's interesting about it is he offers one, and then the second one is much more of a centering issue he raises, and he offers a third. So think of it this way. He offers the first and third as ways to live, but in the middle, he basically gives us the duct tape of faith. In fact, it's kind of an idea that if this one issue is centered for us, it makes everything else work out better. And so we're going to look at the first and the last. Don't go, I actually encourage you not to go ahead and look in your Bibles because you'll figure it out before time. I kind of like you considering it. But we're going to start with the first and the third and then keep asking yourself, what would be this one attribute, this one kind of area that Peter would give us so we'd have a better understanding and it might help everything else. It might help if you were, it stick together. So we begin in chapter five. Peter is recapping now, in a sense, it's kind of that final statement, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, as a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Now, there are a couple pieces just in the greeting I want us to consider. The first is that he calls them elders, and he refers to himself as an elder. Now, he's not speaking of a chronological age. He's speaking of maturity, He's speaking as people who aspire to be actually transformed 
by Jesus, in a sense, you might just translate it to leaders. He's saying to you, listen, I'm a leader, and I'm speaking to you who are leaders. Now, he's speaking to leaders in the church, but in a sense, any mature Christian becomes a leader because as we mature, we lead. And you realize this, don't you? You know you probably lead in some setting. All of us lead in one way or another. If you're a part of a family and in any way have leadership, you lead. Sometimes you just lead yourself. Sometimes you lead the people around you. Sometimes you lead at work. But make no sense. In the biblical mind, becoming an elder is normative, not exceptional. What I want you to see in this, and I just want to make sure you understand he's writing to all of us, is what he says, that we are a witness of Christ's sufferings, and we also share in the glory. Now, this has been a theme throughout his letter, but I want you just to consider the word witness. We often think of witness as someone who observes something, like Peter was a witness to Jesus' suffering, and he was a witness to his glory. You could say it that way. That's not what he means here. Witness in the Greek language, we actually get the word martyr from it. It means you've experienced it. In other words, you give witness by living it. So he's saying, listen, I'm one who has dealt with suffering, and I also see the glory of God. In the midst of all that's going on, I'm living in both. And by the way, we're called to live that way too. Now, if we took nothing else from today and said, you know what he's basically saying is, will you guys live this thing out of faith? God made you to live it out, not to observe it. Wouldn't that be a great thing we could just leave with? Oh, I should live this out. And I think every day we should be reminded of that. God didn't make it for a select few. He gives all of us his presence and his spirit so that he resides in all of his followers and all of his followers are part of building this thing we call the temple. That's what we talked about earlier in this series was the idea that we're all being built up. Just a greeting, but it's powerful even in the greeting. We share in all of this. Now he goes on to specifically give advice to those with leadership roles. And he speaks really beautifully about this advice he's going to give. Uh, and he says it this way, be shepherds of God's flock. Now a shepherd is always the language that's used in the Bible because shepherds watch over, they care for. Jesus himself says he's a shepherd, even refers to him as the one who will come and shepherd his people directly. And then we're all called to do the same thing. Anyone that we give care and watch over. And then he talks about how we're to do it. Don't do it because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Don't pursue dishonest gain, but be eager to serve. Don't lord it over those entrusted to you but become examples of the flock. Now these are three simple ideas he's giving that they're to follow. Very simply, he says, "Don't not because you must. So it's, just think of it this way. It's not a have to. We don't lead because we have to. He says, you wanna know what it is? It's a get to. Now just consider that for a minute. Imagine the places that we lead if we stop saying, I have to do this, but I get to do this. Think of how that changes how we lead. I mean, I'm, I'm one of your shepherds. Can you imagine if I have, if I come up here because I have to and don't get to? Well, good morning. I have to tell you this today. I don't really get to, but I have to. Mwah, mwah. Like we're having the whole message with Debbie Downer. That just does not sound like a good time. And think of how we live often out of obligation, not out of opportunity. I mean, just think of that perspective, how different it would be. He keeps going. It's not to pursue dishonest gain, but to be eager to serve. It's not tight-fisted, 
it's open-handed. I mean, have you ever been in a place when you're leading and you're thinking more scarcity? What can I do to get a little bit more instead of what can I do to give more? Think of how different that is, two different ways to lead and develop. And, and make no mistake, at least if you're like me, I would never say I want to be tight-fisted or I want to do it out of obligation. It kind of slowly gets there, doesn't it? Just take parenting, for example. Do you often, as parents, get encouragement much of what a great job you're doing? Can you remember a time when you had to really discipline a child? You had a real hard conversation. They go, hey, just before we finish, Dad, you know, the way you handled that, I mean, that was amazing. You, you weren't tight-fisted. You weren't worrying about yourself. You seem like you really enjoy parenting me, and that had to be hard for you. I don't think I've ever said that to anyone. When that happens, usually you've got an adult, not a child, and probably a pretty remarkable one. But think of the ways that we slowly move into, I have to, I don't get to, and the ways we slowly grab our fist and say, but I want this for me. I don't want to do things for you, or I'll do things for you as long as I get mine up to a high enough level. I can do anything under here, but the call is to sacrifice. It's to thinking differently about how we do our lives and how we live. Take it to the final one, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock, not to dominate not to get your way, not to get what best serves you, instead of dominating, it's a much different idea than that. It's demonstrating. I'm calling you to demonstrate, to live the way you should, not to dominate. And I'll add another word just because it really hit me when I was reading this, maybe even to liberate. It's not for our own advancement it's actually for our own sacrifice to help others advance. Now, doesn't that sound like some plowder you'd want to follow? And it's interesting. I know that in the marketplace, this is more and more understood, and yet in our culture, it appears less and less practiced these days. I mean, if you just took this, it's pretty amazing. Peter gives great advice. Hey, you know what? The church is going to look different. You're not gonna do things because you have to. You're gonna begin to be so grateful that you get to. Oh, and by the way, you're not gonna do things that you're so worried about what happens. You close your fist and make sure you get. You're gonna open your hand and say, how can I help? Oh, and by the way, you're not gonna do it in such a way that you get more and more and more for yourself. And as long as your more is better than others, it's okay. You're actually gonna demonstrate what it means to let go and to liberate other people. Wow. It's great to read, isn't it? And I'm sure you think your shepherd should do this. You probably should read this and go, Pete, that is a great message for you. When are you gonna start doing this for all of us? And, and fair thought. But are all of you called to lead in some way, an elder in some way? You, you see it, don't you? I mean, it's great advice that from Peter gives. We're just left with a question, of how do I actually do this? All that is in me wants to go a different way. Now, that's on one side. He's speaking to power. Let me take you further into the passage where he speaks to those in difficulty, in some really significant struggles and ways of living. Verse 8, he says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in faith because you know that this family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same 
kind of sufferings. Now he's giving a much different take on this and what we're to live in than he was for leaders. Now he's saying, you need to be alert. You need to very simply pay attention. Now we are lulled to sleep in our culture. You do realize that, don't you? We're very comfortable and we think life is without problem and without difficulty and that's what it's meant to be. And he's saying, wake up, pay attention. I always feel like he's Sister Act 2 all over again. You probably don't even remember it, but she had this song, if you want to be somebody, if you want to go somewhere, you got to wake up and pay attention. He's just, she's just saying, listen, watch what's going around you. That is exactly what Peter's saying. Wake up, pay attention. And then he gives this statement that's somewhat concerning. There's an enemy that's prowling like a roaring lion. Now, I want you to make no mistake, there are two errors we can make in this. One is we make the error that we think everything is the enemy. I see people that make a bad decision, a bad financial decision, a bad life decision, like, well, the enemy got me in that one. It's like, no, you made a bad decision. That was all you. Now, there's the other end of this, which is it's always coincidental, up to me, and they, we don't have any thought that the enemy is real, and there's actually a plan to destroy life. Now, this is quoted, actually, from Job's letter, Job, or Job's story, which is one of the earliest stories we have in the Bible. In case you don't know, Job is a man who loses everything in one day. He loses his kids, he loses his livelihood, he loses all of his belongings, including his home and his livestock, and he loses his health. I mean, that is a bad day. And interestingly, this isn't related to what we're going to talk about today, but interestingly, you can go back to Jonathan Edwards in the 17th century. Uh, He preached about how Job's story is the story of all of humanity. Because the story across life is we lose things. We have people die. We lose our physical vitality. We lose different experiences and relationships. We lose and ultimately will leave what we have accumulated behind, just like Job. Life can be a struggle. And so Job's story is a story of all of us, only it's over all of our time. But coming back to it, one of the things we find in Job's story is people keep trying to pin all of his problems on his fault. And what we discover is it says the enemy, the devil, is prowling, roaming the whole earth to search to destroy life. We often forget there's someone that wants our lives destroyed. And Peter is cautioning us, listen, with everything going on, don't just attribute it to your circumstances. There's an enemy that wants to take you out. And he gives really simple but profound advice. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. And then he reminds us, by the way, it's happening everywhere else. You know one of the first things we do when we're in trouble? I'm all alone. No one else has ever gone through this. And Peter's great reminder is it is common. We all have struggles and battles we will wage. It's so good to know we're not alone. You literally could look around the room and just go, Hey, you're in this with me. We're all in it together. And then he gives simple instruction. Resist and stand firm. Resist and stand firm. And resisting very simply means to fight against it. Like a tug of war, like some way that we battle instead of just saying, I will, I can't do anything else, I'll keep it hidden, I give up. We fight and we stand firm. Great advice, isn't it? I mean, isn't that something we need today? We're being lulled to sleep by comfort and we're missing the fact that we're battling and losing and we're not even aware of it. And make no mistake, we keep a lot of our battles hidden. 
We have lots of things we go through and we have the illusion of a great life, but we live in a battleground. I, I'll just add one thing to this because I think it's significant. At least in my, my lifetime, I have not really lived through a major war. You know, all of them came before the major World War I and II, and then even the wars of Korea and Vietnam, those pieces going on, I was too young to remember anything of. And in some ways, I'm not at all wishing there was war, but we don't understand battle in our lifetime, many of us. So we think everything's just simple and without battle. But just because there's not a physical war doesn't mean there's not a war. And Peter's saying, you know what? You need to be alert and aware. And there's other great advice through this. I just wanted us to see it. Now, what I want to do, though, is take us back to what Peter talks about is kind of the duct tape, the pieces that will make all this make sense, this place to go that sticks it all together. So let me take you back to verse 5, where he really gives us what the centering piece is. After he's talked about leaders, he says, in the same way you are, who are younger, submit to yourself, your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with, with what? Humility. With what? With what? Humility. Guess what duct tape is in the spiritual life? It's humility. Now, I want to show you why and show you how, but I want you to see this. It even makes it very clear. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Now, we'll come back to the centrality of humility, but let me just show you this to begin with. You see how it says to younger to submit to those who are older? Now, it says in the same way, meaning we all do, but think about our culture today. So what do we revere more, youth or age? What do we revere more? Yeah, you, you guys said it with so, such energy and passion and confidence. But think about it. Think as we get older how we lament getting older and how many of us believe that our best years are behind us. And then think about it if you're younger and you really like it because you're important. You realize if that's the value you have, your best days are going to end pretty quickly, right? That's the funniest thing about it. People are younger, it's like, it's awesome, I'm young. And they think, well, enjoy the awesome for a little while because it's going to change. That's not God's economy. God's economy is longevity and experience. And we'll show you more what that means as we look more into the text because I think it gives life to it. Now, make no mistake, that doesn't mean if you're older you get to go, I'm awesome, I'm older. Because we can be older chronologically and not elders. Just age itself does not dictate we've matured, we've seasoned, or we've become who God made us to be. And so chances are, if you feel like you deserve it, you're already in trouble. It's a good litmus test for you. I just, now, now you see how humility is wrapped in all these as we look at them, because as you get older, you don't demand it. As you're younger, you let go of it. I mean, you can just see humility beginning to come out. I want to look, though, why is humility so important and why does God oppose the proud? And this should be kind of an overarching understanding we have if you think about it as a theological grid. When we go back to Adam and Eve and their sin in the garden, God gives them everything they could want to basically run the planet. You're in charge. You're in charge of everything. You're just subjected to me, is what he says. You're my subjects. He offers them the tree of life. He offers them every other tree in the garden except one tree. The tree he says not to eat of is the tree that they would say we'd rather be like you than be subject to you. What's at the root of that? Pride. 
We want to be like God. We don't want to be subjected to God. In fact, I would venture to say it this strongly. Sin itself is rooted in pride. Every sin in its capacity and way we go is rooted in some way of, I want it to be about me. I want what I want. I want what I want now. And I want to be at the center of it. Now, can you already see why humility is the antidote to pride and why God loves humble and hates pride? Unless you just think it's humanity, let me take you to the enemy we've been talking about, Satan. Satan was originally a leader of worship in the heavens. And it tells us through one of the prophetic letters that Satan, when he was Lucifer, got jealous of God being the one lifted up and said, I want to be lifted up just like God. What is that? Pride. And in his desire to be elevated to God's standing, which he was not made to do and never could, he is then thrust down to earth and thrown out of heaven. I, I just want to be clear, why would I call humility duct tape? And why would I say it's a centering value in Scripture? Because it is literally not only the antidote to sin, it is the very nature of God. He is humble. He does not demand anything from us, but he is worthy of everything from us. It's just a very powerful thing. And start thinking about both what Peter's talked about before and after and realize what would humility do to help me in both those circumstances. Now, Peter goes on to define humility a little bit more and even call us out to it. He says, humble yourselves. It's a command. Humble yourselves. Find a posture that lowers yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And then you cast your anxieties on him. In other words, those things you worry about, you ask him to help. You see the humility in that. But it's here that I want to camp. At least I'll tell you how I've read this over the years. Humility was a necessary place to get me to self-exaltation. You can kind of read it that way. Hey, you know what? If I humble myself, ultimately God's going to lift me up. I'm going to be good. I'll be applauded and loved and revered. That is not what that means. We think about it as if I humble myself for a time, then I get elevated. Let me use Joseph's story as an example. Those of you who don't know who Joseph is, he's this young man, one of 12 boys, and gets this great vision that he will basically reign over all of his brothers and will save them all. Now, in his great wisdom at 17, he tells them that and his dad. Does that seem like a wise idea? Hey, guys, let's come together. I know you guys have a great future, but let me tell you about what's going to happen. I am going to be elevated above all of you, and I'm going to save all of you, and you're going to bow down, you're going to worship me because I'm going to be so awesome. Now, does that sound like a thing brothers would enjoy or even a father would enjoy? Like, oh, we do not like this dude. So what happens is Joseph actually goes through years of misery. They, first of all, they don't kill him, but they, in a sense, send him into slavery. They sell him, tell their dad a lie. He goes through all this misery for decades and decades, and ultimately, he does become the agent that saves his brothers from this horrible, horrible uh, famine. Now, what's interesting, though, is by the time that comes, do you think Joseph still wants to elevate himself? He doesn't. You see, what's changed for the proper time is not that Joseph did what he had to so he could be elevated. His disposition about being elevated changed. By the time he was elevated, he understood he was elevated so God could be elevated, not for him. And his motives are no longer for him. Pride was weeded out. I want you to read it like that. 
You humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, because when he has weeded that out and worked in such a way that you can actually bring about what he wants to bring about for him, it will change you and change the world around you. I mean, come on, that is amazing, isn't it? And we live in a time, it, it's interesting, I used to think humility was applauded quite a bit, but this word pride and the self-protectionistic way we've become as culture has kind of shifted this again. We now much more look to how do I protect what I want? How do I use the power to get what I want? How do I look at myself better than? And I think this has become a much fresher message again. Because we're in a mess right now, in case you haven't noticed. And this is the answer. Man, if we would look at humility like duct tape and go, you know what, Jesus? I need you to help me. I want to become this way and live this way. We say it very simply like this. Humility is like duct tape. It is the character trait that God wants to center our lives around and will grab onto and stick to other things that we need in a very simple way. With it, the ways of Jesus stick to us. You see, we can try and try and try, but we will never get there on our own. And what I love about humility is it's not a skill set, it's really a cry for help. At least in my life it is. I have learned more and more that all I can do when I'm not humble, which is as often, is ask God to help me. Oh God, will you help me? I'm centering on myself right now. Oh God, will you help me? This has become a duty in my life rather than a joy. Oh God, will you help me? I am wanting to close my fist off rather than open my hand to help others. Oh God, will you help me? I'm wanting to dominate and protect my role rather than actually kind of show people how to live. Oh God, will you help me? I don't know how to battle in this thing. And there's a lot warring. And by the way, do you know where most of the battle goes on? Right here. Our mind is the battlefield the enemy uses. Our thoughts, our dreams, our aspirations, and that's what leads us to live in a way that's anti what Jesus has for us. We can't do it alone. But man, if we'll humble ourselves, it's like duct tape. And the way with it, the ways of Jesus will stick to us. We will learn to live differently. I want to pray and I want to close this way uh, with this portion of the service. Peter is one of the, the disciples that was a mess. I mean, he really struggled with ego. He struggled with impulsivity. And I'm sure he struggled with not even realizing the battle that was going on. At one point in time, Jesus even calls him Satan because he's an agent of Satan through his own ineptness of what he's doing and his own struggles. And yet, by the time things roll around and the spirit moves and the resurrection happens, Peter begins to be changed. And he begins to see the real power of God. He begins to walk in humility. Do you know he never takes credit for the powerful things that happen throughout this New Testament church? And he's a part of seeing 3,000 come, 2,000 more. He's a part of healing people. He's a part of all sorts of things where the church is exploding and growing. And anytime someone gives him credit, he's like, no, no, no. No. I'm serving like you are, it's Jesus. And so I love this letter because I wanna go, Peter is our mentor and guide. It's like Obi-Wan showed up, or Yoda showed up. Said, hey, I just wanna give you help. I just wanna help you through this. Humble it is, time for you. He just wants to help us. 
I mean, what a beautiful thing he says to us. He wants us to lead differently. Lead in the way of Jesus. Oh, come on. Is that not going to change the world? You guys can do it. You can do it in every setting you're in. You can do it in your home. You can do it in your relationships. You can do it at your work. You can do it anywhere you go and in the church. You can change the world through this humble way of living. Not because I have to, because I get to. Oh, we need leaders like that. Not with a closed grip that says, what do I get? But an open hand that says, how can I help? Not from a place that says, I will do what advances me, but I will demonstrate what will advance you and help you liberate to who you are. Not in a place that takes light lively, but one that is wide awake to what's going on and says, I need to pay attention. And when the enemy moves, I am on my knees. God, I need your help. I can't battle this alone. I can't even hold my ground alone. But man, humbling myself and saying I need you, God will move. I'm telling you, humility better than duct tape. And what it will do to stick the other things of the ways of Jesus is unexplainable to us. Let's pray. God, I'm asking uh, that I did at the beginning what is from you that you'd give life to it. And so where we need to hear this call as leaders, where we need to hear this call in battles, where we need to hear your very life saying, walk as I walked, live humbly, help us to humble ourselves at any age and any circumstance. And Lord, I'm asking that like duct tape, it would help us stick to the ways of you in the rest of life. Lead us to that end in your name. Amen.